people's heart rates go up and up and up and up as their altitude you know climbs and they get closer and closer to that door opening that door opening and everybody spikes right like whoa it's like it suddenly becomes very very real and 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 fear is on the inside of that door because what you learn when you skydive repeatedly is that on the other side of your fear is this most amazing joy and accomplishment. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with social psychologist, entrepreneur, author, podcast host, speaker, teacher, and skydiver, Dr. Kevin Payne. Kevin has lived with multiple sclerosis for 30 plus years and shares the results of his extensive research concerning how to live a quality life with chronic pain, distress, and illness. He is the author of the book, Your Life Lived Well, and I had an awesome conversation with Dr. Payne about his work, his life, and some wild skydiving stories. As always, thanks to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Dr. Kevin Payne. How are you doing this evening? I am doing well, and I am delighted to be here with you, Walker. It's just a couple of Missouri boys sitting around having a good time. I know, yeah. When I was when I was doing a little bit of research, I, I saw that you're originally from the KC area, and I was like, well, you might be the, a rare guest that actually knows where Springfield, Missouri is, which well, is not common. Not only that, <laughs> I, I well, I still live in the Kansas City area. I live oh, okay. in Parkville, and my family settled in Missouri between 1831 and 1866. So my kin have been there for a long time. My mother grew up in Nevada, and my father grew up on the farm his family homesteaded outside Thayer. Oh, okay. I spent my childhood all down there in South Missouri. I've been all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, this is so not relevant to the the podcast, but I can't help myself. Who cares? Some of my cl- yes. <laughs> Some of my closest friends actually live in Parkville. They live oh, yeah. right on Main Street. Just last year, I was there for the Fourth of July parade. It goes right in front of their house. So, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've, in your area. <laughs> I have my dog and my son and I once marched in that Fourth of July parade. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. awesome. Um, well, Kevin, uh, you have um, you've lived with multiple sclerosis for for thirty plus years, and um, I, I wanted to actually start by having you just describe for the audience, for those of us that might not be familiar, what what is multiple sclerosis? What are the the, the symptoms of that condition? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for asking because it's one of those conditions that almost everybody's heard of, yeah. but we don't quite know what it is, and. Right now, according to the latest data, there are about 2.8 million people in the world, about 1 million people in the United States, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So what that means is it's a relatively common rare disease. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what it is is a chronic uh, autoimmune neurological condition. Mm. So it's neurodegenerative in the sense that my brain and my spinal cord, my central nervous system, and my optic nerve, that's part of it as well, is being eaten up 
And so multiple sclerosis is hard for people to get a handle on because everything we do think, feel, say, dream, hope, fear, whatever goes through our central nervous system. And so wherever that damage occurs, that's the symptoms that it affects. So in one place, it could be my legs aren't working correctly. A few millimeters over, and it could be that I'm cognitively foggy. Someplace else, chronic fatigue. Someplace else, I've got pain or itching or numbness or some other parathesia going on in my body. So in my case, uh, I've got my, my kind of baseline symptoms are chronic pain, chronic fatigue, uh, chronic numbness, especially below my knees, parathesias, so that's random feelings that don't really exist. Uh, and I'm always got cognitive confusion that I'm dealing with. And then I've got another 30 symptoms that come and go. Wow. That's, that's, I, yeah, I don't have a word. <laughs> that's yeah, remarkable. And, <laughs> and, and it is autoimmune in the sense that what has happened, we've, when I was first successfully diagnosed in 2006, we didn't quite yet understand what was causing MS. So it's pretty recent. But in intervening years, and as a matter of fact, there was a, a brand new study that just came out in February. Oh. Uh, that helped confirm some of this stuff. What we think now is that uh, we have, uh, we get an infection that everybody gets, common infection, but then we have a genetic proclivity mm. so that what happens is when we get this common infection and fight it off, just like everybody else does, our immune system gets confused and goes into overdrive. And so now my own immune system is attacking the myelin, which is this fatty sheath that surrounds the neural fibers in my brain and spinal cord. And so multiple sclerosis, the sclerosis literally means scars. It's a Latin mm -hmm. for scars. So multiple sclerosis means many scars. And I've got many scars in my brain and spinal cord from the aftermath of my immune system attacking it. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and so, and, and in, in reading um, a bit about your story, you know, I, I understand you, you first started really experiencing symptoms as early as 1989, mm -hmm. but weren't really fully or not fully, but successfully diagnosed until 2006. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to ask you, why is it so hard to diagnose? But I think you kind of just answered that there's so many symptoms that, it's not clear, you know, it's not clear that like, oh, well, if this is true, then it must mean MS is the culprit. Right. And it's often a diagnosis of exclusion because mm -hmm. pretty much all the symptoms of MS have other conditions that can cause those symptoms. Right. They, they often have to go through all of the more likely culprits and rule them out until they finally get to now with with better MRIs. It's, it's getting a lot easier to diagnose. But one of the challenges for me getting the correct diagnosis was back in 1989, so I was 20 years old, and I was in college, and I started having a weird set of symptoms. My balance started going wonky. 
I started itching everywhere, all over my body. No rash, no external signs, just itching. And if you scratch it, doesn't do anything. And, and that is actually the one symptom that has never left me. So wow. I have always itched all over my body every minute of every day since 1989. <laughs> I mean, this is, I don't, I don't have a, I don't know if this is a well-formed question, but just frankly, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with this chronic physical sensation that's just always happening? You, <laughs> it's, I had, I had to teach myself not to care. Okay. The same yeah. way I dealt with chronic pain. Uh, mm. When, when, I didn't really start having pain with my MS till the mid 2000s. Mm. And then that ramped up and it got really bad. And it got so bad that on a standard pain scale, like a standard 11.010 pain scale, I was ranking myself and I, and I have these data because I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a science guy. So right. I started collecting there are about 80 variables on myself that I collect every day that are biomedical, social, behavioral, environmental, et cetera, et cetera. And I run all kinds of mathematical models on it. And, and you know, that's one of the ways I deal with it. Yeah. So, so I started having those pains and I was a six to eight every day. Now that's a significant impairment. That's getting in the way of your life. And I was, I was popping 24 ibuprofen a day for wow. years. And I refused to do opioids because yeah. I just didn't want to get go in that direction. Yeah. And so now I would rank myself a one to three every day. Oh, nothing has changed about my condition. I don't take any kind of painkiller. Mm. I, I put myself I used my science and and I put myself on a, a planned program of meditation and cognitive reframing mm. to change the way I thought about pain. Yeah. You changed the way that you perceived it and then that changed mm -hmm. the way that you experienced it. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. I, and it, this is so not a comparable example. And I understand we're not trying to compare anything anyway, but the reason it's I asked that, no, and I, I don't think that it is. Uh, um, the reason I, I had to ask that, I mean, it's just, I know myself, like recently I, I, pulled something in my back and then went to a, a concert and mm -hmm. throughout the, and it's like my favorite band ever that I'm seeing, but throughout the show, my back is hurting and I'm mm -hmm. like, please stop telling me <laughs> you're hurting. I'm trying to watch this concert. Right. And, but I just, I mean, I, you know, I saw a chiropractor that lasted like three days. And when I saw the chiropractor who helped immediately, I was like, I felt like I was going crazy because there's just this this no matter what I'm thinking about or experiencing, there's this constant thing that's always with me. Um, mm -hmm. And so it just, yeah. yeah, it just that that's it's remarkable to hear you um, describe uh, your ability to, to yeah to again reframe that. Um, well, one of the things that we we don't understand. So so at at risk of going further down this rabbit hole, <laughs> um, uh, the oldest kind of pain that humans experience is called nociceptive pain. There are nociceptors in our skin and some of our organs, and those are specialized nerve fibers that pick up on what are called noxious stimuli. And mm. those are 
crushing, burning, chemical damage, that sort of stuff. So they're fibers in our skin that detect when there is something in our environment that's going to hurt us. And one of the things that we is really interesting about pain is that the pain signal will start a split second before the damage actually occurs. Hmm. And and so when we think of pain in our in our heads as being a signal of damage, that's not what it is. Hmm. It's a signal of warning. Hmm. So now Flash forward a few million years of development, and that same pain system has been reused within our brains to do a lot of different things. And that same pain system is used to process social pain and embarrassment and lots and lots of other things like that. Now, here's, here's the difference. Nociceptive pain is signal. Chronic pain which is often not associated with any kind of imminent physical damage that you can do something about, Mm -hmm. is no longer signal. It's noise. It's Mm. not sending us a meaningful message. I see. And and cognitively reframing pain begins with that understanding. And And the second step then is understanding that pain itself is not a pure signal, but how we experience the pain is conditioned by all of our experience and everything in our environment. I'll give you another for instance from my own life. So I've been in three auto accidents that should have killed me. And with one of them, I was a teenager in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 80s, and I was driving a in you know an 80 something Corolla station wagon and a woman in a 79 T-Bird T-boned me at full speed wow. rolled me down the highway crushed her and so so I, I I crawl out of the wreckage and and I've got you know I'm covered in blood because all the glass had shattered and gone into me I felt no pain whatsoever at that point and the reason why is our system is designed that way. So it's adapted to be that way because if we had a massive pain reaction in the face of a really traumatic injury, well, that's going to impair our ability to get away from and do something about it. So I'm stumbling over to the convenience store that's on the corner there and Here's the thing that that really helps people understand. So I'm massively mangled, blood everywhere, just dripping from front of my eyes, all that stuff. As I'm walking from the street to the parking lot, I stub my toe on the curb. That hurt. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Yeah. Because that was a manageable pain that my system had had gone through the gates and had decided you can do something about this. Mm. So then once I'm immobilized and taken to the hospital in the ambulance and I'm laying there in the ER, about 30 minutes after I got there, 
then the pain hit.、Mm. Why? Because then I was someplace safe. So what I'm telling people is that pain is not a pure signal. There's a lot more going on, and there's there's a lot of cognition and experience and behavior that's being thrown into that signal. And once we understand that, we can learn to reframe it.、Mm. And I'm not saying it's easy. It takes a long time.、It、took me several years of consistent meditation and reframing to do this. And it didn't completely remove the pain that I that I live with, but now it's a low enough level that I can ignore it and I don't care.、Hmm. Well, that's fascinating.、Um, so you you have a, a PhD in both sociology and psychology.、Um, yeah. You're a professor that designed you know hundreds of hours of undergraduate and graduate courses,、um, all while leading, leading a department of over 150 instructors. Can you just kind of talk about? That period in your life, and, and and kind of what I'm just wanting to do is just to kind of paint a picture of how this isn't something. I mean, as we already said, that you were born with, right? So, like, you have a, a life that's normal in air quotes by whatever standard we call a normal life. <laughs> so, yeah, can you just、yeah. kind of talk about that period of your life? Yeah. So, so for me, long before it was diagnosed as MS, so I had these weird spells that would come along every few years. And what I now know is those are classic relapsing, remitting, multiple sclerosis exacerbations, and I would just kind of ignore it or gut my way through it because early on I was told it was depression, and and then I was pronounced. They tried some different drugs, and none of them worked, and so my case was pronounced treatment resistant. So I just didn't. Getting medical help for a number of years until I started getting different symptoms, and 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 it was it was only then that I realized oh all of this has been part of the same thing that's been going on for a number of years. So, you know, I I I did the normal things. I was I was a geeky guy who who loved. Science and I love studying people, and I, I got my doctorate in sociology and psychology, and I、uh, stayed on faculty at University of Missouri there for a few years after I got my PhD, and then、uh, I had the opportunity to take over the department at Park University, and、uh, since my family's from the Kansas City area, it was nice to get the kids back closer to the grandparents and that sort of thing, and so. I, I took, you know, the job at Park and and led that department for seven and a half years until 2012, and I left to become a tech entrepreneur because、okay. that was something that I'd always been interested in too. Because I'm I'm a computer geek from the 70s.
at some point in this window of time, your your wife begins battling terminal cancer, and, and that goes on for close to a decade. W- when did that yeah. start? <clears throat> so, so I start. So in 2002, I wake up one morning, and I can't feel my left leg b- below my knee. I thought I'd overdone my workout and pinched a nerve or something and didn't think anything about it. And a few days later, it was back to normal. And, and then it was gone again. And then it was back. And then it was gone again. And then it was other parts of my body. And then finally, one day, I woke up and I could feel my right arm in my head, but the rest of my body was gone. So that's when my then wife told me to get this looked at. So all this time, well, I'm dealing with this, and we've got young kids at the time and, and everything, and she starts having headaches, really bad headaches, and she just kind of, you know, lived with it for a while, and then we, we <clears throat> she went to, you know, her physician, and, and he uh, referred her and they diagnosed her with migraine. And so she spent two years there long about, oh, 2007, 2008, trialing 20 different drugs. Wow. And none of them worked. And in the meantime, then not only are the headaches getting worse, I mean, we're talking crippling headaches. Uh, and, uh, she's getting worse, but her blood pressure starts going out of control. Mm. I have to realize, you know, in the 2000s, we're, you know, in our 30s, we're ostensibly pretty fit, active, healthy people. Mm. And she just, you know, her. so she's, it's just weird for someone of her size to have blood pressure problems at her age. Mm -hmm. And, and so finally, one day it was it was the day after thanksgiving that year we end up in the er and her blood pressure is completely out of control they admit her they work on her they do a bunch of tests five days later they finally uh, let her out with a a prescription for a medication to keep her blood pressure in line that's dosed for a man twice her size wow and they also, you know, let her go with a referral to a urological oncologist. Okay. Okay, so that's not a referral you ever want to get. Right. So, <clears throat> they we, we go to that appointment. And he walks in, and this is two days before Christmas. It's 2010. And... It's two days before Christmas. He walks in, no pleasantries, no niceties, no nothing, looks her straight in the eye and says, it's a pretty bad cancer. If it weren't for the holiday, I would admit you now and we would take your kidney. Wow. As it is, he says this, this is another direct quote. As it is. I will give you the weekend to spend Christmas with your children and put your affairs in order. And Monday morning, you will be here and we will do the nephrectomy. So, 
so yeah, I you know we 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 went from years of mystery illness where she was obviously dying. I mean, you've been around long enough, you know when people are slowly dying. They mm. they get kind of gray and drawn and thin and almost transparent. And I was bracing myself to to be a widower. Uh, and so Monday morning we went in and, and they did the surgery. It was scheduled for three hours. It took five and a half. There were some complications on the table and, and she's, you know, made it to the surgery. And then a couple of days later, they came in with the biopsy results and said, yeah, your kidney was 9.3 centimeters. The tumor was 8.8. It had been in your system for 14 years. And if we hadn't have gotten it, you would not have made it to Valentine's Day. Wow. So she almost died 10 years almost exactly to the day that she sat there and watched her mother die of cancer. Wow. So it was really traumatic for her. Yeah. And it was traumatic for me because during all this time, my MS is getting, is going through you know, peaks and valleys like relapsing remitting MS does, and the valleys are getting lower. But I'm always kind of rebounding back to, you know, a, a pretty good place. So she lived, and it was very traumatic. And about a year later or so, a little more than a year, she was finally back to something close to her normal self, uh, you know, even though they said, oh, in six months, you'll be back to normal. What right. do they know? <clears throat> so, so now she's better and my MS is at a good place. So I leave, you know, we agree. I, I leave the safest job in the world as a tenure track academic for the riskiest job in the world as a startup tech entrepreneur. Yeah because I had this technology from my research that I wanted to get out into the world. So now we are there without a net. And mind you still, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a one income family with two small kids, no net. Wow. And I get out there and I've got a team and we're going well and the technology is, is getting developed and it's really cool. And I have the worst exacerbation to my MS that I'd ever had. It was mainly cognitive. Mm. And my neurologist at the time botched it. And I had no idea what was going on. I didn't even know what was going on until a couple of years after that, after I had gotten frustrated with my neurologist and switched to a new one and he decided to start with us going through you know by this time it's like 10 years of MRI records and stuff and it turned out that it was a massive right frontal temporal exacerbation mm -hmm. so right frontal temporal damage uh, for those who know brain stuff they know the symptoms are much like dementia Wow. so I had serious cognitive impairment. I couldn't process social signals, labile emotions. They were everywhere. It got really bad. It got really dark. And I could not, I could not see 
away. And I froze up and I got really, really depressed. And my my then wife and kids decided that I wasn't going to get any better. And they moved on. Mm. And my son was the last one to move out. And three weeks after he moved out, my dog died traumatically in front of me. Wow. Bloat. I've had Akitas for years, and, and big dogs uh, sometimes are subject to bloat, which is yeah. gastral you know, torsion, and it happened late on a Sunday night, and uh, you know, I, I hurt him down to my truck and raced to the doggy yard 100 miles an hour in the middle of the night, and they had the stretcher out there, and they tried to save him, and they couldn't. So it was the last thing I was hanging on to, really. So, so my brain is gone. My, my career is blown up. My family is gone. My dog dies. And then three days after he died, this, I, I swear this is true. I was almost struck by lightning. <laughs> it struck the tree beside me and it, it knocked me off my feet, blinded me, deafened me. And, and so by this point, I feel like I am Job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, 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 to be clear, I don't think that any of that is funny. No, other than just the, the very hysterical. last part is just crazy. <laughs> like, just oh my god. Yeah, yeah, and and I literally was, you know, I I got to the point where I could no longer see a path from the life I was living to any life I was interested in. Yeah. Well, and that's that's why I was so excited um, to, to to be able to have the opportunity to, to talk to you here this evening because that's not where you ended, right? Oh. You 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 since then you have a website, your life lived well co. You've got a book by the same name, your life lived well. You do speaking. You do you've, you've got a blog on the website. You've got a podcast. You're going on other, making other media appearances, and and promoting the that even in the the worst of circumstances, which I have to say, I've actually talked to a lot of people who have experienced a lot of tragedies. And again, it's not a contest. No. Um, so I'm not going to like assign a, a rank or something, but this is up there with a, about as dark as I think it could get for a person. Like it's not just one thing that's gone off the rails. It's a lot. And yet well, now I can say it was really difficult for me. Sh- sh- sure. Yeah. Uh, y- yes. Yes. You're, you're incredibly humble. Um, in, in that. Um, so h- how, how did you, how did you go from that point of despair as an understatement probably to, to, to where you are now? Well, I, I really did say I'm going to give myself one last chance. Mm. And I decided I was going to save my life through my science and skydiving. Mm. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, Let's talk about the science first. So it just so happens that one of the areas I had done research on since all the way back in the 90s was the question, why do some people succeed and other people fail under difficult circumstances? Mm. So I was really steeped in that literature. And... Once I was diagnosed, I kind of shifted the emphasis of that question a little bit and 
you know, I noticed because I was living the challenges of chronic illness as someone diagnosed, but also as a caregiver. Right. And, you know, I noticed that that lots and lots and lots of friends and family were dealing with these issues as well. And it turns out that over half of all Americans now have at least one chronic health diagnosis. 18% of us have five or more. So it's everywhere. So, and if you don't have one, that means you also then care about somebody who does. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, everywhere. So I started looking at the question. Now, again, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Payne, but I'm not an MD. I'm the wrong kind of doctor to contribute to a medical solution. Yeah. But what I did know from the research was that two-thirds of all health outcomes are not due to biomedical indicators. They are mm. due to cognitive, behavioral, social, and environmental factors. Wow. Okay? So, That's our powerful. mindset, our, habit, our habits, our behaviors, our social connections are crucial. And those are all things that I know something about. And those are all things that I knew the research on. Because, as you mentioned uh, when, you, when you brought me on, I had, <clears throat> in 15 years as a professor, I had taught 164 sections of 30 different classes. On top of those, I developed another 20 classes to add to the curricula of three different universities that I didn't have time to teach myself. Wow. So I had a really broad, deep understanding of lots of different patterns that if you're like a really narrow specialist, you wouldn't have seen. Hmm. And, and what that told me was I was interested in the question, how do we live well when we're stuck with something really bad we can't get away from? Yeah. Because all of our strategies, you know, our fight or flight response, quote unquote, fight or flight. And there's really a lot more to it than fight or flight. It's really freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright, faint. I call it the effort response. OK, <laughs> and, and and all of those are about getting distance or apparent distance between you and the scary thing. Mm. Well, for me, when I hit bottom. The thing, and, and I'm not a person who's lived a life of fear. I've, mm. I've been very fortunate. And, and fear was not really something in my worldview. But I had become terrified of my own body. Mm. Because it had betrayed me in so many ways, time after time. Yeah. When you end up paralyzed on the ground... For no reason and and you wonder is this going to be the time when the symptoms don't remit right that's that's terrifying when when you can't think your way through a problem that you've solved a thousand times before that's terrifying and and ms is often called by the people who live it the monster with a capital M and S in the word monster, right, you know, right. 
Now, I think that's the wrong way to frame it. Remember, because framing is so important. Yeah. Because because if you frame your battle, if you frame your life as a battle with a monster, you will never win. You are setting yourself up to lose. So for me, it's not a monster. My MS is a cow. And the reason why it's a cow is it's big, it's bulky, it's smelly, it gets in the way, but you can handle a cow. Mm. And 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 uh, I, I will digress with a funny story here for a minute because uh, there's, there's a story behind this. So I lived in England as an undergraduate, and that okay. was during the Mad Cow Scare. Ah, okay. And so to this day, true story, you can check me on this, if you lived in Britain... For an extended period of time during that time, the American Red Cross still will not take your blood. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Go. It's on their website. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, so it, that had become a running joke in my family that one day I would come down with variant Kirchfeld Jacob disease. Mm. Mad cow. And so when I was diagnosed with MS, my kids were really young. And I come home, set everybody around the kitchen table, and explain to them what's going on. And it was about brains and stuff like that and everything. And my little kids sit there, kind of stunned for a little bit. And one of them leans over to the other and whispers in this exaggerated stage voice, Daddy got the cow. Wow. <laughs> so my MS forever became Daddy's Mad Cow. Right. And that is a much healthier way to frame the challenge. Yeah. It's not dismissing the challenge because I live in Springfield. You can't have been around cows. You know yeah. <laughs> they are serious animals. They are. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we may make fun of them, but there, there's nothing trivial about dealing with a mad cow. Correct. And, and, <laughs> So, so I'm not minimizing it. Right. On the other hand, it's not a monster either. Right. Right. So, so for me, I knew that I could pull together research that was that spoke to the experience of living well with a bad thing you can't get away from. Mm. And most of the things, and so I, I interviewed hundreds, I surveyed thousands, I did collected millions of data points, I, I, I did meta-analyses across thousands of studies over hundreds of conditions. And what I found was that more than 80% of the things that those of us living with chronic conditions are having trouble with day to day are not the symptoms, not the side effects, it's not the medical stuff. Mm. It is the cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social fallout of having to live with something that you can't get away from. Mm. And, and that was something I could speak to. And so yeah. that's what your life live well is about. It's about, here are all of the non-medical consequences of living with or caring for a chronic health condition that the system doesn't talk about. I see. Yeah, no, that's, um, 
it, it's really awesome. Um, it, it's it's so. It, this is <laughs> I'm way out of my depth here. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the walk show. Um, so there's that's where there's it gets this, fun. Out yeah, of your depth, man. I, I, love, a, I love there. That's true. Yeah, that's gets kind of your whole your whole thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, again, I'll try not to go too 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 deep in the rabbit hole here. I'll try to make this succinct, but. Um, there's this Israeli historian named Yoval Harari that's written a few books in the last decade that are pretty popular. And he, uh, his theory or idea is that um, what enables humanity on a global scale to be the dominant species um, is not opposable thumbs or a lot of the other things that people attribute to humanity, but it's actually our ability to um, observe objective reality and also observe other non-objective realities and still experience them the same as the objective reality, right? So to some extent, what he's saying, or at least the way I interpret that is that it's like our ability to perceive and and then thereby our ability to, to some extent to choose what we perceive is what has powered mankind to be, the, again, the dominant species in the world. But so, okay, so that's interesting, I think. But then I also um, listened to this neuroscientist named Andrew Huberman, who has a, a podcast, and he was talking about dopamine. And he was talking about how dopamine release, um, he was talking about dopamine, like it has like a, a baseline level. And so if you have really high peaks, then you're going to have valleys. And he wasn't advocating that you should never have peaks, but just that you should anticipate the valley and not think that, you know, something is right. terribly wrong. But he said that if you wanted to manage that better oh a way you could do that would be to change the what you get dopamine from so instead of getting dopamine from the end of something you can teach yourself to get dopamine from the process of something right and so then it's a lot more even as a baseline mm -hmm. i guess you could say. Mm -hmm. and so what that means is that as an individual we can create biological outcomes still with our ability to to perceive right so anyway it's like both on the global scale and on an individual scale it, it, there's evidence or there's this idea that <laughs> that ideas actually are maybe the most powerful thing ever and then to hear you share your story is literally just a lived example of those things and, and again I'm, I'm not a scientist or <laughs> educated at all so i don't know if all those dots really connect but it seems like they do to me. <laughs> well, here's what it brings up to me. And and that is, if you look at all of the research and my interpretation of it as, as somebody who's been doing this for 30 years, uh, yeah. is, is that the single thing that makes us most human is our capacity to tell stories. Yeah. There is no other thing. I mean, it, you know, everything else is a matter of degree. The difference, you know, the more we look at the research, the the less stark the difference between humans, the uppity naked apes, and all the other animals is. Yeah. But the thing that makes us different so far that we know is that humans impose story on their reality. 
Yes. And the most important story each one of us tells ourselves is our identity. Mm. Identity is the story you tell yourself about yourself. So then thereby, is it is it reasonable to, to think then that that a person has to, to some extent, at least the person has to be able to accept themselves in order for them to be accepted by others? Does that make sense? Like, does the story you're telling yourself have to make sense to you before it makes sense to anyone else? It does. We're always. And, and here's here's another thing that that, you know, again, it's stuff I talk about in my book. And it's, yep. it's the humans are. You know, inside. So, so brains and minds are not the same thing. Brains make minds just like bodies make behaviors. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, mind is this process. It's the thing that brain is doing, and we are all a society of mind. We all have lots and lots and lots of different little subsystems, little voices in our head that are all very narrow in what they can see and how they see the world. And some of them are really old. They're primal or they're youthful. And they see one little tiny part of the world. And others, you know, are, are a little more sophisticated and have come along later. And, and so... They're not housed in our basal brain. They're maybe up here in our forebrain. But we all have the central executive. And the central executive is trying to make sense of the world for us. And one of the primary things that, that our forebrain does is it takes all of this incomplete information from our environment and all of this cacophony of judgments that are constantly being fired at all levels in our brains, and it tries to impose some kind of story on it mm. that shows the trajectory of our life and makes sense of our life. And, and so for me, I had come to the point where my story didn't make any sense. It wasn't a story I wanted to participate in. Yeah. So... On top of doing all this research and, and getting stuck in it because it, it's a massive project. And, yeah. and it was about writing a book and developing technology for an app and the curriculum for the company and all that stuff. And it's lots of big stuff. And my brain wasn't working very well. And, and I'm you know not saying now that I have it all hardwired. I still have MS. I've got good days and bad days. But fundamentally, I needed a win. I needed... To face down the fear of my own body. 
because mm-hmm. I can't get away from my body. Right. So I had to rewrite my own story. And for me, skydiving was the way to do that. And it wasn't just something I came to later in my life. I wanted to be a skydiver from the time I was a young kid. And I started doing the training for the first time in the 90s. I got a handful of jumps in, and and I just couldn't finish a doctorate and do that at the same time. Because it turns out becoming a skydiver takes a lot of time and effort and dedication, and it's not something that you just kind of decide to do one afternoon. <laughs> right. Not, not if you want to be a, a serious skydiver. So in 2019, I, I decided to go back. And I knew that it was going to be difficult for me. I knew there was probably a good chance that I could fail because I can't feel my legs below my knees. And so it was difficult to learn how to control my legs in free fall if I don't have the right signals coming from right. my legs. And I had some truly terrifying student skydives. I had one that, that I, you know, my, my legs are completely wonky and it was a few jumps in and, and I, we get back down and we're doing the debrief afterward. And my instructor, she sits down in front of me and this is someone with thousands of skydives. She said, that is the most terrifying skydive I've ever experienced. What's going on with your legs? Wow. And so at that point, then I told everybody that I have MS and I explained what was going on there. And uh, skydivers are, are pretty close knit. We call each other sky family. Uh, and it, it's the kind of because it's when you when you are engaged in an activity where death is always a possibility, like first responders, military, stuff like that. Skydivers tend to have a really close knit culture. Yeah. And so everybody rallied around me at the drop zone and we did a lot of extra training on the ground. And I spent a lot of time in a wind tunnel where an instructor could could hold my leg in exactly the right position. And I knew I couldn't get consistent leg signals from my lower part of my leg, but I do get consistent feeling in the tendons behind my knee. Mm. So I learned to interpret what the rest of my leg was doing by the feelings in my tendons behind my knee. <laughs> and, and I learned to stand up a landing even when I can't feel my feet because I learned how to feel the pressure at my knees. So I know my foot's touched down when I feel the pressure at my knees. Right. So with a lot of support and a lot of creativity and a lot of workarounds, I managed to figure out how to do this. Normally it takes 25 jumps to get your first license, your A license in skydiving. It took me 47. Wow. But I kept at it. Yeah. I kept at it. And so in 2019, I got my A license and my B license and logged about 140 jumps. And in 2020, I said, I'm going to set myself a serious goal. I'm going to become a legit skydiver. And what that means is getting past 500 jumps. Because 500 jumps is where you're eligible for all the licensing in the in the sport. You're eligible for professional ratings. And so in 2020, that meant if I was going to do that that year, I was going to need to log better than one jump a day for the entire year. Wow. So in 2020, when everybody was curled up in their hidey holes with the 
pandemic, I was screaming to the sky and I logged 370 jumps that That's year. Awesome. And, you know, got my coach rating along the way. So, so for me, it's a way of choosing life. Yeah. Okay. So if you, you've seen the picture on the cover of my book yep. and, you know, if people aren't looking at this, it's, it's me and I'm in street clothes. So it's not a, it's not a jumpsuit or a helmet or anything like that. So I look like a regular person who's just been dropped into this extraordinary circumstance. And that's often what we feel like when we are diagnosed with a chronic health condition. Yeah. We feel like the bottom has dropped out of our life, that we are suddenly in free fall. And it's, you know, got the beautiful clouds and sun on the horizon and everything. And the important thing is my hands are up to my forehead, like I'm saluting with both hands. Mm. And I'm about to sweep them out in a broad gesture. And that is a gesture every skydiver in the world will recognize. It's called the wave off. So imagine when this picture is taken, that instant, I'm 5,000 feet above the earth. I'm headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. If I do nothing, my life expectancy is 27 seconds. <laughs> That's crazy. I have less than a commercial to live if I do nothing. But I've got my hands up here. I'm giving the wave off. I'm warning everybody in my airspace that I am about to take action to save myself. So I wave off and I deploy my parachute. I choose life in the face of certain death. I choose life every time. And that's why I wanted to jump every day on average for the entire year, because fear is on the inside of the door. You know, you go up in the plane and they've done studies on this. People's heart rates go up and up and up and up as their altitude you know, climbs and they get closer and closer to that door opening, that door opening and everybody spikes, right? Like, right. whoa, it's like it suddenly becomes very, very real. <laughs> right. and, and, and fear is on the inside of that door because what you learn when you skydive repeatedly is that on the other side of your fear is this most amazing joy <laughs> and accomplishment. Because I can tell you there is nothing like streaking through the sky like Iron Man. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an ancient human dream. Yeah. Why? Yeah. And, 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 and I do that with my friends, even though I have a wonky body. Yeah. So the joy is on the other side of the fear. And, and every time, it's like a memento mori. You know, the old stoic idea of the memento mori, the reminder that in the midst of life, we are, we are, death is ever present and, and we must live because someday we will die. Mm -hmm. The way skydivers say goodbye to one another is we say blue skies. That's actually half of the phrase. The full phrase is blue skies, black death. Wow. Yeah, puts it in puts it in in you know in perspective. It yeah. is the yin and yang of skydiving. It is we brave you know for the joy of the blue skies. We brave the possibility of the black earth. Mm. 
and the death that that represents. And that's okay. Yeah. Because we're building the competence and we're building ourselves at the edge so that we can handle that. Yeah, it it strikes me it's come up a couple of times in what you're talking about and you know yin and yang is a, a good way to describe it I think, but it's you described it when you were talking about referring to uh, your MS as the cow. And and what I'm talking about in describing that was when you said that you're not pretending like it's not there, right? You're not you're not ignoring it. But at the same time, you're also not letting it be this infinitely powerful monster that can't ever be bested, right? And so there's a there's a balance to that though. There's a there's a it's it's a space in the middle is where you found peace to some extent. And then and then that's again what you're talking about here with the skydiving. It's like it's this the most exhilarating experience that maybe you could have coupled with you could die <laughs> like in 27 seconds or less or whatever, right? So I just I I find that I find that notion of that that middle space, I don't know what the word is for it. It just seems like that's where maybe the truth exists. And I realize I sound <laughs> falsely philosophical right now or something, but is this, does this make sense? What I'm, what I'm getting at? Like it. I yeah. Don't know. Let me, let me get, okay. So in, in chapter four of my book, it's called the edge. Yeah. And the edge is a ratio between what a task demands of you in this moment and what you can deliver. Okay. So, if your capacity is really high and the task demand is really low, then you're bored. If the task demand is a little higher, then it's a habit and you can easily accomplish it. If the demand gets a little closer, then now you're engaged and you're thinking about it. And now, as it gets almost to everything you can deliver in this moment, that's the edge. And that's a flow experience. Mm. And, and when you can find that balance, as you say, that edge, then some of the most beautiful human experiences happen there when we are accomplished. And, and, you know, when, and, and when we are opening ourselves to a new person that we think we may be attracted to, right? Because there are physical edges, there are cognitive edges, there are emotional edges, there are behavioral edges, their social edges, their operational edges, all of those, those edges. Now, here's where the balance comes in. If you mistake where your edge is, if you don't know yourself well, then now your capacity is just a little bit lower than what the circumstance is demanding of you. Mm. And you are overwhelmed and you will fail. Right. But the best human experiences are right here and just a slight shift and our worst experiences are right here. Yeah. And then if you really overshoot it and it's a lot more is demanded than what you can give, that's an injury. And if it's even more than that, that's trauma. That is actually what trauma is. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, it, it's, it's super fascinating. I do have kind of a, uh, maybe a silly question, I guess, but I, I just, I think the skydiving is so awesome. You've done over 600 jumps at this point. Is there, and, and I mean, it's, it's funny because this is a weird sentence to construct, but 
you have routine skydiving jumps, I'm sure. Like, mm-hmm. out of 600, some of them are just, you know, a shoulder shrug <laughs> to describe it, which is crazy oh, because for someone like me, that's not possible, right? Like, to me, any skydiving jump would be... Yeah, but, <laughs> but it says something beautiful about how marvelously adaptive yeah. we are. Yeah. Because this is about the furthest thing you could possibly imagine doing compared to what humans are naturally adapted to do. Right. And yet we can still do it because after you do it for hundreds of times, time slows down. Mm. Your senses expand. And, and now suddenly everything up there seems in slow motion and it seems almost intuitive. You're like, oh, my friend is over there 50 yards away. And you go right over to them and you link up and you want to flip around and do acrobatics or, you know, free flying is what we call it. And and you want to do formations and or track through the sky. You know, you can go from belly to earth, which is about 120 miles an hour to tracking where literally you do you put your arms back by your sides and you extend your legs. So you do look like that Iron Man position. Mm hmm. And you can go from 120 to 200 or more miles an hour in a second. That's crazy. So it's just like this mind blowing (laughs) amount of acceleration. It's like, and you are shooting through the sky. And so, yeah, this, for me, this was literally about confronting that fear of my own body and learning how to make it literally save me every time. Because I needed that kind of confidence to carry into the world to do the other stuff that I was interested in. And somehow I think I got us a little bit veered off. Where were we going with this question? No, no. Well, no, I was just going to ask if there was any. No, that was great. That was excellent. I was just going to ask if if there was any any jump that stood out uh, amongst the 600. And maybe it doesn't have to be your favorite. Yeah, maybe there are many. Well, no, I'll tell you the one that really kind of freaked me out. I was I was getting so it was, uh, it was late October, mid to late October. I'd have to look at my log to tell you the exact date in 2020. So I'm I'm getting close to you know by this time I've logged a little over 300 jumps that year. So I'm getting real close to my goal of breaking 366 because it was a leap year. So I had to get more than 366 jumps that year. Yeah. Uh, and, and I go on this jump and it's, it's, it's just a routine four way jump. And, uh, you know, young guy came in and docked on me and he came in a little hot and just the wrong angle. Didn't do anything wrong per se, but the way he grabbed my arm, sudden pain lancing through my body. I hear a pop sound. Uh-oh. And what the anterior head of the bicep detached from my arm. And you can see it's still not healed right. I mean, so, so, so I got, you know, I got, I had to, you know, figure out how I could work my, my parachute and flare and land and everything. But I did. And, you know, hurt like the Dickens. And I'm, you know, debating here is like, is the other part going to stay attached? Right. Because, you know, otherwise, I, I, you know, I really should have gone to the hospital and had an operation and, you know, done this stuff. But 
I knew if I did that, I would not be recovered in time and I would have to kiss my goal goodbye. Mm. And I was, I was close. I was close. Right. So I put a brace on my arm and kept jumping even with the detached bicep. And, and I made my goal. Yeah. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. That, um, hurt, hurt like the Dickens, but I, yeah, did, I, I thought I was going to pass out. I thought I was going to pass out and I'm there thinking, okay, I cannot pass out in free fall because now we do have a, a, a backup device on our, you know, cause every parachute has two parachutes. Every rig has two parachutes in there. And one of them there is, there's a little computer called an AAD and that's an automatic activation device. Mm. And if you get to, a certain altitude at a certain speed, it will automatically open your reserve parachute. Ah. So in my case, that's 900 feet, which like most you know experienced skydivers have it set around around 900 feet or so, and that means that there's still a good chance that I'm not going to have a happy outcome on right. this, especially if I'm if I'm passed out. You know, I may be saved, but I may be really cracked up. Right. So, so I'm like, no, I really have got to, you know, and I'm swooning. I'm, I'm really, it's like, bet. ooh, you know, wazy, and, and it's like, okay, I gotta, you know, track away, and I gotta get out of here and pull my parachute and get down here. But, but huh. that was the one that 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 that, that yeah. probably more than anything else that kind of. I can see why. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so again, Doctor Ben, we talked earlier. Um, you, you, you have the book, your life, uh, lived well, uh, again, you, your website of, of the same name, what can people expect to find when they, when they go to your website? You, I know you develop curriculum and things like that as well. So, yeah. so what, what can people get from that? Yeah. So I, I, you know, spend most of my time, uh, teaching others. So we've got 16 different standard, uh, seminars, webinars that are for, uh, those who are diagnosed or their loved ones or caregivers. And then we've got another eight that are for medical health and wellness professionals uh, because they face a lot of difficulties treating us all the time, too. And yeah. so they're, they're on a wide variety of uh, topics from behavioral change to figuring out your medical adherence to rest, relaxation, sleep, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, their mindfulness and meditation, uh, you know, just, you know, so there's 16 of them. Uh, that, and I do those for organizations, but I also have, we do three a week that are open webinars that people can come in. And right now uh, we've got a big discount that we're, that's available. So there are those things. There's the blog. There's, you know, my Your Life Lived Well podcast, which is an educational podcast. Uh, like the one that the episode that's releasing tomorrow, uh, as we are recording this, is on, it's called Being a Sick Man. And it's on masculinity and chronic illness. Mm. Because there, there are a lot of issues that we deal with being sick men. Yeah. Uh, and, and. They aren't talked about, I think, enough. And so, you know, you can download 100 pages free of the book and see if it's something that's of interest to you. And, and 
their links to media appearances and you know all kinds of other stuff. So, and and we just launched a Patreon uh, as well that has all kinds of things that that are being offered. So lots of different ways to connect. And I'm I'm really interested in hearing other people's stories and in other people sharing their stories with chronic illness. And I hope that. You know, if you go back in the the episodes of, of the Your Life Lived Well podcast, there are episodes on these really practical, science-based, evidence-driven tools that you can use for pain management, for you know, how to get to sleep, understanding the difference between tiredness and fatigue and exhaustion. Because medically, those are three different things, and mm. people do not understand. So a lot of times people tell me that they live with a chronic condition, but they found it really useful to have their loved ones who don't understand something that they're living with listen to that podcast with them mm. so that then that would spark a conversation because it was something that they weren't able to explain in a way that their loved one could understand. Yep. No, that, 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 that's, that's tremendous. Um, that, that you're putting that information out there. Well, I will have links in the show notes to your website, um, to your podcast, and then also to, to your book. So people can check all that out directly. Um, Dr. Payne, I, I really can't thank you enough for your time and can't thank you for, uh, how humbled I am to, to have the opportunity to interview you this evening. So thank you so much for coming by. It's been a real pleasure. Well, you are very kind, and I've really been delighted to connect with another Missourian here on, on the wilds of the interweb.
Well, that's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Dr. Payne for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game show where we talk about why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. All of these podcasts can be found on any podcast app. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up.